Welcome to Not Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show as we enter our third season, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack. Or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Season 3, Episode 9. When Tides Rise, Build Your Own Boat. Césaire's Arrival in Ireland. I'm excited to share with you my story of Césaire, the woman who led the first invasion into Ireland, as described in the Laura Gawala Erin. As you'll hear, Césaire's mission was ultimately doomed, but her story lives on. In the conversation that follows, featuring the wonderful Carmen Schreffler, we'll pull the resonance of this age-old story to talk about how to respond to our changing climate now, ecologically, entrepreneurially, and creatively. Our guest, Carmen Schreffler, is a marketing consultant who works with purpose-driven entrepreneurs. She gives them the tools to cultivate rich and diverse ecosystems where they can thrive. She believes in connecting folks with their natural gifts, intuition, curiosity, and discernment. She is a guide who will help you on your path to create a sustainable business that meets your needs and goals. I am so excited to have Carmen here with me today to discuss this story. And as is our way at Knotwork Storytelling, we first let the story speak for itself, and then we'll explore all the ways that it still matters. My name is Césaire, and you probably haven't heard of me, but I'm nearly certain you have known my grandfather since you were a tiny child. My grandfather, he's famous for being a great sailor, though he was born a farmer and had never seen the sea a day in his life until the day that all he saw was sea. He succeeded because he never actually had to sail anywhere. He just had to float and wait and pray. And all of this is quite fortunate, since the man knew nothing of navigation and wouldn't know the North Star from a firefly. When it all comes down to it, he succeeded because he was chosen by God. Some guys get all the breaks. His story gets remembered, and he doesn't struggle at all in the quest to be believed. In fact, there are plenty of people still wandering the slopes of that mountain at Ararat looking for sacred splinters and holy planks. Some say history is told by the winners. I would note that it's told by the survivors, and that's almost the same thing. At the very least, we can agree that history is best preserved when you have a good PR team and a message that fits the prevailing winds of the age. My story? My story was useful for a time. But then it went out of fashion. Once I was real, and then I was a mere invention. And now, now I'm a woman of myth, and you get to decide what to do with it now that you're listening in, now that you're woven into a narrative that may look more than a little like your own. 
Oh, my grandfather? Mm, yes. His name was Noah. Yes, that Noah. He was known, is known. His three sons, too. But only the storytellers and scribes on a distant Western island could have told you the whole story. Those storytellers and scribes knew about the fourth son, a son so unremarkable that his dad Noah wrote him out of the will from the very beginning. This was before they even heard that a little water problem was going to send everyone to their lawyers to make sure matters of the estate were up to date. Let me put it plain. When God let Noah in on the little secret about how to survive the great flood, and my grandfather started building that great boat, there was no cabin save for his son, Biff, nor his wife, Biren. There was no place for me. And let me make it even clearer. It was not an oversight. We did not miss the boat because we were out playing with the unicorns. <laughs> no, my own grandfather told me to my own face that he had not been directed to leave any cubits of space on his great ark for our branch of the family tree. And he made it clear that part of the reason we didn't have a berth on the ship was because my father was so strange and so foolish that he would send a mere daughter to negotiate on his behalf. Noah wasn't a bad guy. I think he was a softy underneath, really. There was no way he was going to negotiate with God for a bigger boat, though. And he wasn't going to leave a pair of mammals behind to accommodate another son when he already had three of his lads committed to the trip. He did let slip a little tip, however. There were some islands far off the western edge of the map where we just might find a dry place to wait out the end of the world. No man had ever set foot on that land. And we were pretty sure that the sinless soil could hold the damp. If God and Noah were to be trusted, we might just have a shot. And so the girls and I got to it. The rift between my father and his father, it had its roots well before I was born. But I know I didn't make it any better. Noah was a proud, blameless patriarch in a tradition that loved a good patriarch. My dad was a humble, quiet radical who harbored ideas about equality between the sexes. He said, but only in a whisper, that he didn't believe he deserved incontestable power simply due to the inherited supremacy that came packaged with his anatomy. My mother thought that such a lib philosophy was dead sexy. I grew up knowing that this way of understanding gender and equality was simply true. And so, in our own little village, far from the paternal family compound, we created a sort of haven for ourselves and for any women who had tired of their own troublesome menfolk. Here, a woman could be free of all the rules and regulations and mansplaining that was chapter and verse for just about everyone else in our neck of the woods back then. And can I tell you, our community was simply a marvel, and we could build a boat as well as Noah's boys ever could. We did it differently, however. Exclusivity wasn't our game. We didn't look to the heavens to figure out the passenger manifest. We took all who were brave enough to come aboard. And so we didn't build just one boat, but three. With hope and trepidation, we set out from our sheltered seas to the wilds of the ocean. Two of our ships, they were lost during the voyage because even the average storms of the North Atlantic were cruel beyond all reckoning. With a mix of grief and relief, we found ourselves setting down anchor in the sweetest little bay, all surrounded by lush, forested hills. 
And so we created a home in hopes that this virgin territory would welcome in our new nation of 50 women and three men. We had every intention of dropping all the pretensions of purity so we could be fruitful and multiply, even if the ratios were a bit skewed. We weren't looking for romance anyway. We were looking to create a new world with what we had, our chosen community of castaways. It's important to note that one of the lads in this group was actually my father. Bith, God love him, had embraced this whole anti-patriarch stance because he didn't want to be the cock amongst the hens. But it's funny how the typical guy's guy misses the fact that the men who are strong enough to be feminists tend to get all the girls. The poor man literally died trying to do his part to populate this new world. He wasn't a young fellow. And in the age when you weren't supposed to gaze upon your father's nakedness, it doesn't seem right to tell you whether he enjoyed himself in the end. It's bad enough that we all know that he failed to consult with his doctor to discover whether he was healthy enough to have sex with 16 women charged with continuing the future of the human race. Oh, and then there was Ladra. He was a nice enough man, but he wasn't up to the task either. He didn't last more than a week past my father. And so we were a bit downhearted and more than a little worried about the health of the last man standing, Vinton McBochra. We weren't meant to fall in love, any of us, at least not with the men. The lads could be good company, but to be a bit crass, they were really just sperm donors at that stage. And so I had chosen to lie with Finton, as did about 17 others, but I would not say that I loved him. He was new to our village when the whole boat building project began. He was intriguing and he had a lovely singing voice, but we always had to be wary when a new buck wandered into town. Was he drawn to us for our progressive politics and because he too dreamed of a new way of being? Or was he simply thinking, target-rich environment? We didn't have time to figure out if Finton was actually fatherhood material, but he had no trouble performing his conjugal duties as his personal pool of eligible ladies increased and increased. But 40 days after we arrived, as the rain, and I do mean the rain, started to fall, and the sea levels started to rise, we all started running for the hills and then for the mountains. And that's when we realized that old Finton was a good time guy, and he was not built for a crisis. When the waters rose so high, and we set our sights on the Ara Mountains, the highest peaks we could see on what was proving to be a godforsaken island, old Finton fecked off with a splash of silver scales. It turns out, that our Finton had been keeping a secret, and the man had the gift of the shapeshifter. He transformed himself into a bloody salmon and had a fine enough time waiting out the flood in his own wee cave beside the sea. As for me, well, I ended up in a watery grave, so far from the warm, dry world that birthed me. My sisters and I stood on a mountaintop, the last patch of earth meant to be our new home, and had no choice but to let ourselves be swallowed by the sea. This is a story all packed with the nearly unbelievable, but the wildest bit of all came just as the waves took us in. We were met by a trinity as old as the hills themselves. Banva, Fodla, and Era, they said they were called. Goddesses of this land, they were. Ever living and immortal. They were made of the elements, all earth and water, air and fire. You can't drown water just as you can't burn fire. They would endure. 
they would tell my stories when finally the floodwaters receded. The stories would be repeated and repeated until finally they could capture language on a page and there would be folks who could write it all down and claim old goddesses' tales as history. It was good for these men in their monasteries to find their land was once, briefly, settled by someone with a biblical pedigree. Finally, there were men who were willing to remember me for all the ways that I was wild and free in the days before the waters rose up and swallowed the entire geography of this great green earth. As for Finton, he'd endure too, the damnable shapeshifter. When the life of the salmon no longer suited him, he traded fin for wing. He lived for a time as eagle and hawk. He'd come back to human form, the bloody opportunist, and he'd have the ear of great kings. He'd swim and swoop his way through the stories of this land for 5,000 years or more. He thrived in this new country, in his way, after he hitched a ride with me to get there. Well, me? What of me? They'd record my story. They'd believe in me as it suited them. And then they'd forget me. And then they'd deny me. They'd reduce me to mere invention. But you and I know that just for this moment, while we shared this story, and before the waters rise too high, too fast, too real, that I was as real as any founding matriarch could be. And Shanae, that's my story. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sitting with me to share it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So part of the reason that I knew I wanted to sit with you and share this story was that you have such an ecological consciousness, such an understanding of ecosystems. And I just knew that we had to tell a story that was somehow rooted in the earth and in reality, in the awareness that things are changing and things are difficult, and that there's also laughter and joy and a whole world to give a side eye to at the same time. (laughs) Well, and I think the story is rich in all of those things, the transformation and what does it take to go through the transformation and get to the other side? What does that look like? Yeah. Yeah. I just want to give a little bit of the background of the story before we dive in and start tearing apart the pieces in that it's so crazy that something very much like this is in the original mythology. I didn't make Mm -hmm. up the fact that Ireland doesn't have a creation story, but it has a book of invasions. It has stories of different groups and races of people slash beings who came in to actually create and populate the land. And one of them was, in fact, a woman named Césaire, who was the granddaughter of Noah, who came in a boat with 50 women and three men. They didn't mention that there was a Mm. commune back in the Holy Land where they came from. That was my invention. But it was, in fact, true that she was here for the, a brief 40 days before the, the rains fell. And that there were, the, of those three men, their names are what's recorded in the history. And that this fellow, Fintan McBochra, lived on to tell his own stories. And it's also part of the stories as well that she was created in order to help people of the time invent a wonderful, vibrant history for Ireland in that sense of having some really good PR and knowing that the story you tell matters. 
And of course, I know you are so engaged in storytelling, in marketing, and helping people to tell their stories so that others can believe and join in. That felt like another reason why this was an ideal story for you and I to explore together. Fascinating. I've never heard the story before of Cesare. And it does definitely speak to like what stories get told, right? And what gets passed on and what is important to the winners of culture, of society, and like what are the motivations for sharing the stories that get reshared and reshared. Yeah, it's fascinating that it's real. I mean, that's, I love that. Right. Yeah. And it's real in the sense that it's real because somebody made it up X number of hundreds of years ago, years right? Ago. And that's, and that's whole, that whole thing too is like, what makes a myth real, right? It's the belief in it. It's that someone wrote it down a long enough time ago and that we keep discussing it. And also there were times when floodwaters came into Ireland and it would have changed everything because the ice caps melted. Once upon a time, the islands of Western Europe were attached to one another. Certainly we know that England was attached by a land bridge to France and that all of these places looked much different. And in 10,000 years of folks living there, they saw a lot of changes on this land. How did they understand it? How did they end up telling the story? So it fit the context of the day, which was like, hey, biblical knowledge. We should definitely be in that book. What are we going to do, guys? Well, I don't know. There was this other goddess. Her name was Cesare or something. Maybe she, maybe there was a connection and playing with it from there, which maybe isn't all that different than the work we're doing here with myth. You know, you know I don't think it is. I mean, because I think it is that figuring out how we can tell stories that will help people connect to each other mm-hmm. and to the work that we have to offer the world. Now, most of the people that I work with have a desire to help others in ways that often are healing ways and being able to tell the story in a way that can connect them to their own history is important in order to make it accessible to them because otherwise it just gets lost. Right. Right. Which is always an interesting tangle for the writer, for the artist, for that sense of I create for myself and this is a means of self-expression And it's a means of communication in order to create connection. And I think that, you know me, I speak in terms of knots. That's one of the Mm -hmm. tangles that we get into all the time. And I think it's it's a struggle as old as the artists themselves. And it's a struggle even more right now when we're in this crowded environment of noise and art and media and content And the sense that knowing that anyone who's hearing our voices right now made a really conscious choice for which I'm deeply grateful that this is what they choose to hear in this moment and take in when there are countless other options out there. Yeah. It is an interesting balance because it's easy to get overwhelmed by the number of options that are out there, right? To be like, well, why should I create this? And that I think comes back to the importance of the uniqueness of our stories, the uniqueness of what it is that we have to offer. And I know that can often sound very trite, but it's when we look at what are all of the different elements of your life that have brought you to this place, and then how can we use that to transform 
the story to make it uniquely yours. And that's also, everyone is talking about chat GBT and AI and how is that going to change how we do work. A lot of copywriters that I know are very distraught over like, well, they're just going to replace us. But I think this speaks to that, right? Maybe it will give you a place to begin. You don't have to necessarily begin with a blank page. You could have it come in and then you can add your voice and weave your voice into it. But at least at this point, it's looking at the intelligence of like, what is it that really brings your humanness to the story and to your work? Brings the imperfections of being human that allow others to relate to you, that allows others to connect and feel comfortable. And not being afraid to go outside of culture as well. Say more about that. So, I mean, in the story, they live very much outside of culture, right? Because it's not acceptable to, to have a family in the way that they do. But it's so much when we go outside of culture, when we rewild ourselves and allow ourselves to connect to our true natures and to what is true and integrity for us, where we begin to find our real truths and our real paths and our real stories. So it can often be, especially when you're just like starting to explore those paths, it can be difficult to discern like what is it that is really true for me versus what isn't. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of trial and error and messiness there in figuring that out. And what does that really look like? But when you can really follow those paths, like that's when I see the entrepreneurs that I work with really begin to blossom and their businesses begin to thrive because they're accessing wisdom that's truly theirs Mm -hmm. and not just regurgitated from a template that someone has given them. Right. Yeah. You bring up that word rewilding, which is so important to both of us. And I think we interpret it in our own ways, proving your mm-hmm. point exactly of that sense of here's this big idea that I'm going to bring through my lens and who I am and what I have to offer. And again, how you underline that sense of the messiness of the process and the discernment that's necessary to say, wait, which parts of culture, civilization, of the way things are, am I meant to unlearn and shed? Which ones actually are of service to me in some way? Because I believe in them, I'm rooted in them, they support me. And what parts are, that's just the system, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. that either we need to learn to live inside of and find a way to thrive within and use to support others. And when we're supposed to come and, you know, in the words of Audre Lord, take out, whether it's the master's tools or your own new tools, and really rip the whole house down. Though in the parlance of the story, I suppose, instead of tearing down a house, they built a boat, which is actually kind of a fascinating concept of what if instead of destruction, there's actually a new invitation for an absolutely unseen unimagined creation that will take you to the next shore. And that resonates more deeply with me because I feel that we all have to find a way to navigate through the waters in which we are in. Mm -hmm. And just choosing to destroy everything doesn't often really give us a boat (laughs) to navigate on, right? We end up sinking and floundering and not being able to thrive, not being able to get to the next land. And I also think, you know, whenever you approach it with creativity and wonder, that's when 
the new systems can be created, the new paths can be discovered. And that doesn't come when we're in a state of anxiety and panic and destruction and anger. Those things shut down our creativity, shut down our sense of wonder. Mm-hmm. There's no real path forward through that in that approach. And it occurs to me too, this idea of a path forward in a story that's full of water where, you know, Mm -hmm. 360 degrees and more are all your options. And that sense of there's the, that old mythic story of being thrown out in the rudderless boat, right? You go get sent Mm -hmm. beyond the ninth wave in the coracle to see what next adventure you're going to land in, to see whether or not you'll ever die. And I'm realizing, of course, this is why we do myth work, is that in the conversations, like, oh, wait, Noah's Ark story was a rudderless boat story. The way this story gets told and held is as well, because there's a time of navigation. There's a time of saying, I know how to get from point A to point B. And that's an incredibly important set of skills. And then there's other moments when it says, there are are no landmarks here. I have no idea where I'm going yet, but I'm on a new journey. And I'm just kind of curious how those play together because I think they're both part of life at different points. Mm, Absolutely. And I think that they can both, you know, that it's not necessarily an or, but an and, you know, that we hold them both together, right? We often might think that we know where we're navigating towards when really we're ending in a totally different direction that we can't even see yet. But that's why I think that the learning how to trust your intuition, mm-hmm. how to discern through that messy middle that I talked about, like how to really discern what is true for you and what is not true for you and being able to use that And then also being able to maintain a sense of curiosity Mm. about those around you and about what might be next. Because when we can stay open, then it doesn't matter so much whether we have a rudder and that we're pointed in the right, moving in the right direction, what we think is the right direction, as it does trusting that we're moving in the right direction. And there's a just very, I know it might sound the same, but it's very different. To anchor this in, it feels important to mention, like your work Mm -hmm. is called marketing for wayfinders. So we're really talking into something that you really know in your bones and have really spent a lot of time thinking and holding. Because I feel like a lot of these ideas we have like, oh, yes, that's true. I feel that. What I love about you is that you also ground us in, in the the midst of a great, great ocean, you remind us like there's bedrock under the water and you have your own sense of intuitive knowing and strength to look to. And by the way, there are stars up there that will tell you that North does exist and then so does East and West and South too. But you really made a beautiful practice of taking these big ideas, you know, in your core and you know, intuitively and helping people put them into practice. Yeah. I mean, and it's what I love doing the most. So often when people will start to work with me, they come because they don't actually like marketing. 
Mm. but they know that it's something they have to do because it's full of all of the shoulds, right? It's full of all the rules of, of Noah's Ark and, you know, that it has to look this certain way in order for them to be successful. When in reality, it's when I can help them to follow what feels true to them and what are their guiding stars. What is their North Star? What is true for them? What are their goals? And look at that. That's when we create businesses that thrive. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't have to be done using toxic tools of online marketing and culture. There are other ways to go about it that are just as effective, if not more so. Well, Carmen, you know that I love the way that you work and that it's so much in resonance with what I yearn for because, you know, in many ways, I know I myself would call myself an accidental entrepreneur who's just sort of looking for ways to tell stories in a bustling, busy marketplace. And I just, I'm looping back and thinking when you mentioned previously that idea of the chat GPT thing and that whole sense of how that's sending people, creatives, copywriters, into some sense of crisis and some sense of like, the world is changing and evolving. And I just am not sure how I'm going to fit into it again. Is there another system that's taking over and swallowing up the human creativity, the human potential, the beautiful vagaries of the human heart? And what that makes me think of is that in certain ways, it's the question of like, is chat GPT or AI or whatever next technological innovation, quote unquote innovation, depending on who's discussing it, is that the next flood or is it just a really bad rainstorm? Do you know what I mean? Like in the sense that we look mm -hmm. at Cesare's story and there wasn't any choice in this moment in biblical history, you either got in a boat and you tried to survive or you had to have a belief in the afterlife. And maybe you'd get another shot in another plane. But it just makes me think of, especially in entrepreneurship, and I'll speak for myself, you know, and it sounds like, hey, that next, that launch didn't go the way that I wanted it to or needed it to. Is this just another really bad rainstorm or is this the flood that says, sister, you got to get in a new boat and you got to do this another way. And maybe you need to go out and fix up your resume and go get a job. Because mm. it becomes like how much we're thinking right now, rains are falling in California, no, and they've needed it so badly. And it's also a crisis in certain ways. So I'm just wondering how with your, the way you look at your work and the way you look at helping people serve others to bring their magic to others, how you look at rainstorms and floods and crises and moments to change course. Mm. So it's a great question. And I think the answer is, well, it's several fold, but like, I feel that it is, I do think chat GPT is really just a storm. First mm. of all, I don't think that it's a great flood. I think that it will become a powerful tool. I had a, a client last week who asked it to write a, a business letter. It was like a business contract. And she was like, you know, it was a great start. A lot of things that I didn't think of. Now she took it and personalized it. And so it can be a very powerful tool for us to use, but I don't think that it is necessarily going to swallow up the industry, right? It's not going to swallow up people. However, the question of like, how do 
we weather storms, part of that is a constant, continuous assessment of where we are. So this launch didn't go as well as you thought it should, could. So looking at it, analyzing it, you know, what are the, it's not all about our intuition. Some of it is, but like looking at what are our numbers, what are the data points that we have? What did you do? Did you have a previous launch that was successful versus this one? If so, what were the circumstances both culturally surrounding that? Was it, if you ran a launch during election month, maybe it wasn't so successful. People are a little distracted. Are there other things that are happening globally that could be impacting it? But what are the things that you've done differently? What was your timeline? What was, you know, and really looking and analyzing all of those things, but without judgment, like we're looking because it's a sense of experiment and it's like, okay, so what are the possibilities? Like we can look at it and assess what maybe didn't go as well as we needed it to. And then the question is always, well, what can we do differently? Hmm. Where are the, the areas that we can evolve? Because one of the things that I do truly believe and see is that businesses need to evolve as not just the owner evolves or the entrepreneur, often solopreneurs, but like, but as their team evolves, as their clients evolve and making sure that evolution happens. So you're not staying stagnant, right? And so sometimes that does look like a big flood that comes in and kind of like sweeps out all of the old so that you can go, oh, actually, this is really what I want to work on. This is who I want to connect with. And I'm going to start over, over here. And sometimes that's actually refreshing as opposed to trying to continue to use the same pieces to solve a puzzle that you can't solve. Very rarely do I ever tell someone they should go get a job though. It's very rarely on the list of things that I resort to. Right. Yeah. See, I just love the way you put things. You just ground things in. I'm like, it's, it's going to be okay. I'm talking to Carmen. Like, we're going to sort this out. You know, and I know that that's yeah. something that you offer to the people who are fortunate enough to work with you. It's that sense of like, oh, there is, well, we can find a way. And that is a really valuable, necessary skill when it feels like, well, to mix the metaphors, it feels like the world's on fire. And at the same time, we're ha- we're experiencing a great flood at the same moment. And that feels like that calls us over to sort of the environmental ecological ramifications of this story, which is, I know something you're every bit as fascinated and intrigued and Mm. preoccupied by as you are with creating good capitalism and businesses that support people. So tell me where you are in terms of being with this story about great climate changes. Mm. What does that bring up for you? What does that make you think about? Mm. Now, climate change is definitely alarming for all of us at this stage. And I choose to remain hopeful. Mm-hmm. And so really what I focus on is rewilding, renaturalizing my, the land that I own, encouraging everyone around me to do the same. Mm-hmm. I shared a, an article last week. I shared it with you. I also shared it with my mother about the flowers, I forget exact title, the flowers that aren't good for the bees, I think. I'll include it in the show notes. It's a great one. 
And my parents are not very ecologically minded. So I say my father still is a big proponent of his grass, just being grass without anything else in it. But I shared it with my mom and because they have a huge number of very fancy gardens, but she was like, oh, well, I didn't know this. And she's like, now I'll make sure that I include more natives. So we had an entire conversation around what native plants she can include and what does she already have and what can she propagate more of. And the reason that I feel it's important is because just even those small changes that we can make can start to have a big impact. Mm-hmm. And so it's really focusing on that is what like keeps me from, allows me to sleep at night is what can I do to at least start to change the environment that I'm in because it does ripple outward. And I really believe that. And I see that and focusing on making those kind of changes. So I just had one of those epiphanies in which like, but of course, so the, Mm -hmm. one of the ways you and I initially connected was over Mary Reynolds work. And she is, well, I think she calls herself a recovering landscape designer who's really dedicated to rewilding and she's based in Ireland. And of course her latest book is called The Ark. The Ark. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yes, it is. That's so funny. Right? I didn't even put that together. But of course, subconsciously, I must have, because originally I had a different story to tell with Carmen mm-hmm. and I, we were all set and I'd sent it, sent it to her. And then three days ago, as a, a new story came in and I have to tell this one with you instead. And I was just grateful. We have a friendship such that I can be like, hey, can I change the entire plan after you put some prep work in already? <laughs> and you said, sure. And I said, thank you. And now we sit here and say, but of course we need yeah. to talk about creating the arc because we've already had this conversation with Mary, though we haven't yet had let her know that she's been in on it. By the way, Mary, come on the podcast. Let's talk about arcs too. Wow. So I have not actually given myself permission to read that book yet because Mm. the to be read pile is incredibly long. Can you Mm -hmm. give us some insight and our listeners? So Mary Reynolds' new book is called We Are the Ark, Returning Our Gardens to Their True Nature Through Acts of Restorative Kindness. And acts of restorative kindness is is what the, the acronym for the word ark. And looking at ourselves as part of nature and talks all about how we look at ourselves as part of nature, how we look at the impact of our actions and the choices that we're making in the landscapes around us. And that very much is the same in terms of how I look at business. For me, the way I look at the gardens and the way I look at how we create our businesses are not dissimilar Mm. because when we can make our our business, our, our, our act of restorative kindness is rest- restoration for ourselves, but it's also for the ecosystems and all the creatures that come into contact with it in both our gardens and in our businesses. And so as things change and evolve, we have to continue to respond, right? To act in say perpetual creative response. And what does that look like? You know, that looks like listening, investigating, being open and curious in all of the areas. And I do highly recommend her book. It is absolutely gorgeous in terms of the illustrations and the philosophy that she's teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
I'm so struck by the ways in which, in the same way that a liberal arts degree was was considered a great idea and hopefully will be considered a great idea again. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a fascinating article in the, I think it was in the New Yorker, about whether the English major is done and how much it's declined in the last 15 years because people have been going to STEM, because it's where the money is, because it's where so much of the emphasis is. But it's kind of a strange digression, but to say as an English major myself, I read this with a great bit of avid interest. And that sense that the way liberal arts degrees and being in the humanities was always sort of offered was this sense of it's access to all these different truths through a lot of different doors. So as you're speaking of our relationship to to the planet and to all the different creatures that are part of us and our landscape and the more than human world, thinking about business and how that's not just about us selling a thing to some customer somewhere, but it's part of this greater rippling ecosystem. And then I also realized that's exactly why I am so invested in story and mythology, because it's the ways in which we tie all of these different pieces together and understand our relationship to the natural ecosystem, to our cultural monetary ecosystem, and how we bring all of these different ideas together. So it's that moment of like, right, all of these pieces truly do make sense in concert with one another, even though we live in a world that oftentimes, you know, you have a good of five different doctors for five different organs because you need all these different specialists. And we know, but wait, it's the holistic vision that says, I need someone to look at me as a whole. I need someone to look at the land outside my door as a whole. I need someone to look at the way that money comes in and out of my life as a whole all really comes together. I mean, and I think that looking at it holistically is part of the way that we can find a healing way forward. Mm. It's necessary to have both in order to really thrive, not just succeed, but to thrive. Right. And that it's not just theoretical. And that's one of the things, you know, I love about your work and the conversations you and I get to have is that these are these great ideas that we feel like we could have learned in our philosophy classes and our folklore classes and this and that. It's not just the stuff of fiction and novels. It's the sense of like, if you look outside and let yourself see things from this broader vision, it's actually the way that the world works. That's so immensely comforting and makes, again, makes it all feel so possible. Yeah. I think that's where part of the fun comes for me is like watching people go from the like, well, that's great to, oh, wow, this works and works really well. And like really learning to trust and own that, that's fun for me to watch that transformation. I enjoy that because then they do get to create amazing new things and to really start to enjoy their business and enjoy their lives all at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I want to bring us back to this phrase that I associate with you, and that's mm-hmm. perpetual creative response, right? Mm-hmm. Can you tell yeah. us more about how that, what that means to you and how you live that and share that with others? Sure. We exist in perpetual creative response is a quote from a yogi. But what that means to me is that we remain open-minded, mm-hmm. right? And that we remain open 
to wherever we find ourselves, the moment that we find ourselves in without judgment and that we move from that place to move forward. So if we find ourselves in a place that's has a lot of water, but we actually had planned on building a fire, we reconsider. Maybe we'll go for a swim instead. It really is about like, well, what is it? Where do we find ourselves? You know, when the pandemic hit, for instance, in 2020, like there were a lot of businesses that were like, oh no, what do we do? And they froze. And so the ability to just take a minute and breathe and really ground yourself and say, okay, where are we? What are the tools we already have? How can we respond to where we are and what can we do? And look at that and then decide on how you move forward. That's how I navigate my life. It's how I navigate business. It's how I help other businesses navigate their businesses. Does that mean that we don't ever hit any bumps? No, of course not. Sometimes things go wrong and then you go, oh, that's an or. Like what's next? And like figuring that out. And what can I learn from what went wrong? Mm. So a funny story that comes to mind is uh, I love homemade ice cream. And I had invited friends over for homemade ice cream. The bucket that I have is a wooden bucket. If you don't use wooden buckets for a while, they shrink, right? So in order to have them work, you have to remember to swell the bucket. Otherwise, it won't hold water. So I had forgotten to swell the bucket and the ice cream would not set. It was just, just wouldn't set. And so I was like, oh, well, we'll just have milkshakes. We had the most amazing milkshakes, <laughs> like, which is just silly, but it was, but that really is an example of, I mean, I could have been really upset. I could have thrown it all out mm -hmm. or I could say, oh, this is actually a milkshake. Let's have some really fabulous milkshakes and onward and remember to swell the bucket next time. Well, I love that now instead of, you know, everyone uses the whole when life gives you lemon, lemons, make lemonade. <laughs> when life forgets to swell your bucket, make a milkshake. And there's a real teachable <laughs> moment in there because I have to say I have never dealt with a wooden bucket. I am sure that I have <laughs> written many stories in which presumably my character would be carrying a wooden bucket, but yeah, mine is plastic and it's out there next to the air conditioner in the backyard. It's just these opportunities to remember like, wait, what skills have we forgotten because we haven't had any reason to use them? And how in a podcast about Noah's granddaughter in which we discuss business ecosystems and perpetual creative response, does everyone learn how to next navigate their situation with a wooden bucket? Yeah, you just never know when that might come in handy. I feel I've grown from this conversation, if only because next time I need to make ice cream, I clearly need to ask for an ice cream kit that involves a wooden bucket too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds delicious. <laughs> that sounds delicious. Well, Carmen, I would love to meet you for milkshakes sometime soon. I'm so Absolutely. grateful for this conversation and all that we've had a chance to explore. I would love for you to tell our listeners more about where they can find you and your work. So you can find me on Instagram at Carmen Shruffler or my website at wildpreneur.com. And I've recently started a Substack, and you can find more about that on my website as well. Yes, it is so wonderful to be writing in community with you on Substack and so many other 
just brilliant folks. I think you and I were chatting about how it feels like there's something about that mid 2000s blogging that's come back in a way that obviously a lot of us were really hungry for that sort of connection and community and excuse to curl up with the iPad and a cup of tea and read a couple of really great pieces. I mean, I think that's one of the things I love the most is that they're they're longer real form, like real writing, not just not just marketing sound bites. You can really dive into things. Yes. Take that chat GPT. You couldn't write a <laughs> substack like my heroines and heroes <laughs> do over there. <laughs> Great. Oh, well, Carmen, thank you so much for being part of this story with me today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love, and your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through season three and beyond please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub, Myth is Medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach at marisagowdy.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billionbath.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people.